I thought since today was uh, Children's Sunday, I'd start off with a couple of children's picks of my own. Uh, first one here, 1971, Sherbrooke, Quebec. So uh, that is my father's family there, and that's me in the front in that lovely orange and black leisure suits. That's me right there. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, dressed for the occasion. Uh, I love that home. Yeah, I don't know if you see that wallpaper there in the back. Uh, that, that's impressive, but it was velvet. You could run your hands over it. I just love that house celebrating Christmas there. Next photo, my second, 1971, Cedar Rapids, Iowa. That's uh, me there with uh, our two oldest kids, Isaiah and Liz. And Isaiah's just got, I think, a Bob the Builder puzzle, which he looks quite happy about. And uh, you look back on these moments, again, as I looked at those pictures there of my early Christmas, and everything just seems so perfect. You know, just so wonderful, just so full of joy and fun, so many good memories. You know, I went through those pictures of our early family Christmases, and you feel the same way. You know, you look at it through the eyes of kids, and it's just so good. And I think in some ways, that's what we appreciate about today. You know, seeing kids on the stage and whether you know these kids or mow them and some are yours or related to you or none at all. There's just something that brings joy and blessing and encouragement about Christmas. That's just part of what this season is. Now, now here's the other thing, you know, as I looked at those pictures, you know, and sort of reflected back as a child, you have no idea what's really going on in the family, right? You, you, here's what you know. Christmas is complicated. But when you're a child, you have no idea of any of those things. The stories, and even as you look at those photos, the hurts, the losses, so many other things that all encompass the Christmas season. And in some ways, that's again what's endearing about children. They just have this simple way of looking at life. Just this simple trust and this joy in the moment, and that's why we, we appreciate them. And so to stay on the children's theme, Jesus takes some children, and he looks at them in these same quality, same character traits, and he says there's some profound spiritual lessons that we can learn from children. Jesus just takes these kids and he says, here, I want to teach you something about how you relate to me. I want to teach you something about the, the gospel and about why I came and about the message of Christmas. And so to stay on our children's theme, that's where I, I want to go this morning. We're working our way through the book of Luke, and we've arrived at this passage of Scripture, just three verses, where Jesus talks about children and what we can learn from them. So I hope you have your Bibles. It's Luke 18. We're starting in verse 15. It's just three short verses. And here's my hope and prayer today. As we look at the lessons that Jesus teaches us from children, we'll just come to understand Him more. Come to understand what He thinks about children but also how we relate to him as children and the difference that that makes in our lives. So we've got three verses we're going to look at. Each verse has a different principle, and then really the third one sort of takes us back to this idea that we've just talked about, how we relate to Christ. It's all part of our series, you know, the idea that Jesus came in an ordinary manger, you know, there's, if there's two groups of people in the world, extraordinary and ordinary, who did Jesus come for? Well, he came for the ordinary folks, not for the extraordinary ones. And we see that in his chosen location to be born in a lowly manger. 
But these stories in Luke sort of remind us of that. As Jesus is getting closer to His time in Jerusalem, what Luke does is tells us stories of ordinary people, unlikely people, unexpected people, the ones we maybe don't think are going to find the message of Jesus. And that's where Luke points us to. And so that's where we find ourselves today in Luke 18. And let me read each verse and then we'll find a principle in each one. The first is Luke 18:15. People were also bringing babies to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. So let me just pause there. Let me just give you a sense of what the scene is we're looking at. Sometimes, maybe you're in Sunday school, you saw a picture of Jesus, you know, sitting under a tree and the disciples around him and they're all relaxing. And then here comes, you know, a family with a baby and, you know, it just doesn't work out well. That's probably not the picture here that's going on. And as we've gone through Luke, we've seen that Jesus is dealing with thousands of people. Even by today's standard, You know, these are really large crowds, and they all want to get to Jesus, right? They all want to, you know, hear Jesus teach. If he's multiplying the fish and the loaves, they all want to eat, you know, and if they are bringing people to be healed, if they're bringing a blind man to see or a deaf man who they want Jesus to touch and hear or a lame man who might walk again, everyone is crowding towards Jesus. And so what are the disciples naturally doing in crowds of thousands of people by the very nature they are doing some crowd control? We see that a little bit in the feeding of the 5,000. They had them sit down in groups and the disciples fed them, but the disciples are doing crowd control. We have another word for it. Sometimes we call it triage. Right, the disciples are sort of triaging who's going to get to Jesus and who isn't. We know how this works. If you go to the emergency room after church here and you say you have severe heart pains, let me tell you what's going to happen. You're going to get in pretty quickly. They're going to run you right in there. Now, if you go up to the emergency room and say, hey, I've got a little sniffle and I'd like to see the doctor, let me tell you, you're going to be there a while. Right, you may be there. And and again, they're just triaging different levels of need and that's what the disciples are sort of forced into here. Some people are gonna get to see Jesus and some people aren't and they're guarding Jesus, right? They're trying to protect him like we would any other leader. And so in the disciples' mind, if you see that scene, they're looking in and they're seeing parents come with babies and they're like, you're really low on the list. This is not that important. This really doesn't matter. These other needs are much greater. Let's get these people to the front of the line so they can see Jesus. Now that's what they're thinking, but then you also see they're not handling it very well. Right, what were they doing? They were rebuking the parents. As if to say, don't bring your kids. Jesus doesn't have time for them. He's not interested in them. Don't you see all these other greater needs are here? And so as we look in, And we see what the disciples are doing here, just sort of how they're processing what's going on and how they've lowered the value of children. Let me just give this first principle. Here's what it is. And uh, before I say it, some of you are going to object immediately to it. It's just a general principle. It's not true all the time, but it's just a general principle. Here it is. We are not by nature child-friendly. We are not by nature child-friendly. I know some of you are objecting already. I told you you would. Some of you are parents, and you're like, I'm very child-friendly when it comes to your own children. I totally agree. I totally agree. It's just a general principle, not true all the time. Others of you are like, I love children, and I would say, praise God that you do. You do love children. And so this is not true all of the time, 
But generally, as we look around our world, and certainly the world of Jesus' time, we realize that generally, by nature, we, our world is not a child-friendly place. Now, we know this was true in Jesus' time. We have one letter written in 1 BC by a poor laborer. His wife was pregnant back in Alexandria, Egypt, and he wrote her a letter to, to instruct her how to deal with the pregnancy. Here's what he said. It, he advised her to keep the child if it is a boy and to cast it out if it is a girl. That's his advice. Cast it out if it's a girl. And what he meant by that is they would just simply, if they didn't want the child, just simply leave it outside the door of the home. And so what Jesus is entering into is a world that is not child-friendly at all. Here's a quote from an author. The ancient world did not have a romantic notion of children. Children added nothing to the family's economy or honor and did not count. In the Greco-Roman world, one could literally throw children away by exposing unwanted infants at birth. The unscrupulous would collect exposed children and raise them to be gladiators or prostitutes or even disfigure them to enhance their value as beggars. This is the world that Jesus arrives in. And you see, his disciples, in some ways, are just reflecting the value of the day, not a child-friendly value. Now, as you think of the world that Jesus is in, and you think in some ways how our world has a, a different sort of view of children today, how, how things have changed to, to some degree, you think, how did that happen? How do we see such profound change in how we view children? And certainly one of the ways is the power of this story that we are covering right now. This one moment in history that's recorded by Jesus instills a value in his followers and all who would come after him to value children. There's certainly more in the Bible about this, but we look at this moment, it's profound and it shapes a value system that we still feel in our world today. So that's Jesus's era and we see the change he has made. But let me also say this, I think we still live in a world that by nature is not child-friendly. Think about around our world today, you can think of the world child and then sort of fill in the blank. There's quite a few negative things, some unspeakable that happen to children that we just categorize, you know, child slavery being one of those. And then think of our North American culture. Think at how at times we may look down on someone who chooses to have a lower standard of living or forgo their career so they can stay home and raise kids. Think of the scorn we might have towards someone who has a large family and all they're doing is obeying Jesus, being fruitful and multiplying. And think of in our culture today how we have universally and rapidly devaluing the sanctity of human life. And especially as it relates to children that life begins at conception. And think how we have devalued that. And in many ways, we still live in a world that by nature is not a child-friendly place. So as we look in on this story, we see the reality of that. And then what will happen next? What will Jesus do? His disciples are, you know, have rebuked these parents. And here Jesus comes in verse 16. Here's what he says. 
But Jesus called the children to him and said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. It's this moment that is revolutionary. In fact, in Mark, Mark says that, Mark records that Jesus rebuked the disciples. They were rebuking the parents and Jesus harshly rebuked them. Now, now Jesus is not advocating a free-for-all here, if anything goes, but what he is saying is, don't put children in a lower category. They can come. Everyone can come to me. Anyone who has need, let them all come. All the people, children included, let them come. And he says the command in two different ways. He says it positively and negatively, just so we understand it. The positive, you see, let the little children come. And the negative, do not hinder them. Let nothing hinder them from coming to me. So here's the second principle as we look and say, Jesus, what have you taught us and what does it mean for us today? Here's the second idea. We must prioritize the spiritual nurture of children. We must prioritize the spiritual nurture of children. That's what it means when we say that Jesus says, let the little children come. We make it a priority. And let me just speak a moment for you parents who have kids still in the home or whatever age they're at. Here's what I think in five years from now or 10 years, 20 years from now, however you want to run it out, whatever time frame you're looking at it, I think you get to a point where you look back or and you say, the thing that matters most is what my kids believe about Christ. And again, sometimes in parenting, there can be so many different things happening, so many priorities, but I think there comes a moment where in your heart, what will matter most is where they stand with Christ. And so I just want to, that's why we put forward this priority, that now in the midst of everything else, we prioritize the spiritual nurture of children. Let me give some ways we can do that. One is parents, parents of all ages, pray for your kids and keep praying for them, and keep praying more for them. Keep trusting, keep believing, keep calling out to God for your kids. Parents, pray for them. God, put your children in your home and in your family for a purpose and for a reason, and may you just continue to cry out to him to do his work. Second thing we can do to prioritize the spiritual nurture of children is around the home. Pray with kids, read the Bible to them, read the Bible with them, talk about spiritual matters. But then even more than the activities, may it be the overflow of our heart. May we model in our hearts a love for Christ that we value him and may that overflow into our homes. Here's the third way you can prioritize the nurture of children. Simply this, attend church. Attend church every week. And there's actually been more written on this, more encouragements in this regard, I think, after COVID. So I found this article on the Gospel Coalition website back in September, or yeah, back in September, Cameron Cole is the author. Here's the title, Parents Just Go to Church. Here's the subtitle, It's Hard to Get to Church, and That's the Point. Here's what he writes, Nothing can compare you for the labor that is getting small children out the door to church on a Sunday morning. I don't know if it's spiritual warfare or whiplash from the weekend, but dressing small kids and loading them into a car is a grind. And parents, you can say amen to that. Then, even when your kids are teenagers, there are days they seem to resist just about everything you suggest. Getting to church is hard. And you can say amen to that, parents. 
But that's the part of, value, of the value of attending church every Sunday. It sets the tone for the Christian's daily struggle to live in personal relationship with Christ. And I love how he made that connection. It's, it's getting to church is hard, but that's in some ways what it means to follow Christ. So I, as I was reading the article, sort of walking through, enjoying it, but in my mind, I was sort of thinking, this guy must come from a perfect family. He's got it all figured out. And then about two-thirds of the way through the article, he talks about his own father, and here's what he says, and I so appreciated this, and it was so much grace, I thought, for us today. Here's what Cameron said about his dad. My father rarely talked to me about spiritual matters. I don't think he had a vast vocabulary for such conversations. Still, he modeled the Christian life well largely through his unflinching commitment to go to church every Sunday. And he goes on to say that his dad, who didn't say much, modeled and valued that Jesus was the center of their life, that he was worthy of worship and praise, and just saw the discipline of going to church every week. And so here's how he concludes. If you feel inadequate to lead your kids spiritually, just go to church. If strategizing about your Christian parenting feels overly complicated, just go to church. If you've been taking a few too many Sundays off, just go to church. Ask God to give you the grace to have this constant discipline in your family's life. Faithful church attendance can have an eternal influence on your kids. Just go to church. It's a good word of how we prioritize the spiritual nurture of kids. Now, let me just pause here, and I think we've got some where, if you're in here at grade 6 through 12, we've been talking about you. You've noticed that. Uh, but let me just talk to you for a moment. And if I could sit with every grade 6, 12 student and say one thing to them, say one verse, it would be this, Matthew 6, 33. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all other things will be added unto you. If I could sit with every student here, grade 6 through 12, that's what I'd want to tell you. Make seeking Christ first your priority. Make seeking his righteousness, living rightly, your priority. And then hear the promise. All other things are added unto you. Grade 6 through 12 students, you can make all the other things the priority. But don't. Make seeking Christ and his righteousness your priority. And then one last thing I want to say here, thank you to the so many of you here who volunteer to prioritize the spiritual nurture of children in our church. It takes an army of people to do nursery and, and uh, harbor kids and Tuesday nights, grades 6 through 12. It takes so many people, and so thank you for the so many of you who live that out and who prioritize the spiritual nurture of children by volunteering. And here's what I thought I would do next. I thought this was a good idea. I'm going to tell you what I, I decided not to do, but I'll just tell you it anyway. Um, but we're not going to do it. I was going to say, uh, let's now go out and have people call out those who made a difference in your life, who was maybe a volunteer, someone outside of the family who made a difference in your life. So I thought it could have been risky, but you know, have some people call out some names and maybe say how you knew them and how they made a difference in your life. So that was my original plan. But then as I tried to process that personally, I thought, what name would I call out? And actually, I don't have a good name to call out. That's sort of why I moved away from it. Now you might think, Jeff, didn't you have people in your past outside your family who made a difference in your life? So many of them. But I don't have one person that made a profound difference. I just have a whole lot of people who just made a little difference all along the way. All Sunday school teachers and youth leaders from grade as early as I can remember to grade 12. And I'm just so thankful 
thankful for all of them together. A whole church that prioritized spiritual investment in me. And I think that's a better picture to leave us with. All of us together as a church prioritizing the spiritual nurture of children. So our first principle is simply this. Our world, our nature by nature, we're not a child-friendly place. Second principle is we should prioritize the spiritual nurture of children. But now Jesus takes these ideas about children and now he goes a level deeper. He says, what you're seeing in kids is going to teach us something about how we relate to God. And that's where he goes in verse 17. These are strong words. Listen to what he says. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. Very strong words. You can't get into heaven. You can't experience the salvation and life that Jesus has for you unless you become like a child. So Jesus is making this analogy. He's saying the way children relate to their parents is the same way that we need to relate to God. And if we don't relate to him in that way, we miss out on the life and the salvation that he offers us. Now, if you're following along two weeks ago in our series, if you're following along in our series two weeks ago, we talked about the Pharisee and the tax collector. That was the story we did two weeks ago. And then we did Zacchaeus last week, but, but it sort of comes later on. But the story that immediately follows is this story. It's like Jesus told a parable, and then just in case anyone was confused about how the parable worked, it, Luke records it then in real life with children for us to see how it works its way out. You remember the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee comes with a strong resume towards Jesus, both his character and the way he's living. He says, here's my strong resume. And Jesus says at the end of the story, he leaves not receiving eternal life, not receiving the life and the salvation that Jesus offers. And everyone's sort of shocked by it. But then the tax collector comes and brings nothing. And he just comes and says, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, it is this man that receives my life and my salvation. People, people, their minds were blown. It didn't, it couldn't make sense. But yet now Jesus comes and teaches the exact same thing in a different way using children. Here's the principle. We receive salvation by admitting our helplessness. We receive his salvation by admitting our own helplessness. That we are indeed like children. Lord, have mercy on me. I bring nothing, none of my own goodness. We relate to God like babies relate to a parent. We need help. We are helpless on our own. We don't bring our good works to God. We don't have any. Or any ones we do are all having mixed motives. We bring nothing. We just come and say, Lord, I am helpless. I have nothing. Have mercy on me, a sinner. And that's when we receive his grace and his salvation. That's so important for this morning. So important, because when we deal with a topic like this, that we are not by nature child-friendly, and we should prioritize the spiritual development, I know many of you, or most of you, all of you would agree with me on that. You say, yes, Jeff, what you have said is true, but yet we also realize that in our own hearts and in our own lives, we have fallen short. What God calls as the standard, we know that we have missed the mark. And then what do we do with that? What do we do when we feel that way? Well, it's this story that teaches us. We come saying, Lord, have mercy on me. 
I don't bring my goodness before you. I'm utterly helpless and I'm utterly dependent on you for my salvation. And that's the moment where God meets us. I've been reading in November, I read through the biography of a man named David Brainerd. He, was, he died in 1747, and Jonathan Edwards uh, then took his spiritual diary and put it into a book, and it's still uh, available today in his actual words, and actually fairly uh, good to read. Uh, the interesting thing about David Brainerd and, is that he was a man who was really given over to depression, and so you read his journal, and at times you see the real despondency in his heart. The other thing about him is he died at the age of 30 or around 30, he had tuberculosis. And so 300 years ago, they just didn't even understand what he was sick with. And so you, he suffered greatly. So you see this man in both physical and in mental suffering, but he was also a man who loved Christ deeply. And as a missionary, really saw God work and use him in other people's lives. And that's what's so fascinating about his journal. It just brings together those three themes all in one. Well, David records a moment of a man in his ministry who came to faith in Christ. And it helps us understand what Jesus is talking about here, about coming being utterly helpless, utterly dependent and undone for Christ. Here's, here's what David writes. And then I think this is a reflection back after talking to the man after his salvation. He says this, I would often preach a sermon that you needed to be utterly helpless and undone to find Christ. You need to be emptied of dependence upon yourself. And then he says the man would come to him and say, I want to believe and accept in Christ, but this seems quite contrary to all of my thoughts. And so they would have this discussion. You need to be helpless. No, this doesn't seem right. And then he records that there was a moment in this man's life where God opened his eyes and he saw this. He said he saw nothing but badness. And he saw that it was forever impossible for him to make himself better. And that he deserved eternal, ministry, eternal misery. And that he was naked and sinful and miserable and nothing in the sight of God to deserve his love or pity. had nothing to deserve any of those things. And so that's the journey. He hears the message. This man comes to understand that. And then he records that he comes to church. And he says, in that frame of mind, he came to public worship and I, David, was calling people to come and depend and throw themselves on Christ. Now we all sort of think what's going to happen next. But it's at this moment the story takes a turn that I think is profoundly insightful. The man, as he was hearing, he needed to come to Christ and he'd heard it a lot. The man now began to believe in his heart that he could never come and give his heart to Christ. And he was beginning to lose hope. He conceived that he could not do that. And here's why. He began to see how deep his own sin was and that anything he did would signify nothing at all. It was, it would be, there would be no hope for a better opportunity more or later. He just felt, I could never do this. He saw and was fully convinced that his own strength would forever fail. Do you see his journey he's on? You need to be undone. You need to be helpless. So he gets to that point. Then he hears the call to Christ and he says, I'm so helpless now, I can't even call on Christ. 
I don't even know if I can do that, if I'm good enough to even call on Christ, if I have the energy to do that. And then here's what David records. At this moment, he saw Jesus Christ. He saw his glory and beauty as he had never saw before. He did not now give away his heart, so as he had formerly intended to do and attempted to do, but it went away of itself after the glory in Christ he had discovered. And here you'll see the final quote on the screen. He thought nothing about himself or what would become of him hereafter, but was pleased and his mind wholly taken up with the unspeakable excellency of what he had then beheld. After some time, he was wonderfully pleased with the way of salvation by Christ. So that it seemed unspeakably better to be saved altogether by mere fear, the free grift of grace of God in Christ Jesus than to have any hand in saving himself. Do you see where God brought him? So low to the point where he realized it was only and all Christ. That's how helpless he was. And then in that moment, he saw the beauty and the greatness of Christ and all he had done for us, him on the cross. That's what Jesus is teaching here. We cannot enter the kingdom of God unless we come helpless unless we come undone, then even we, we recognize that our own ability to trust in him is only a gift from him. And we say, God, and we see the beauty that Christ has done everything for us. And we just must lean into him. It's not our self-sufficiency. It's just everything as a gift of grace from God. And some of you watching online or here this morning, if you've never heard that before, if you've never come and accepted that gift of grace, if you would feel helpless and undone like a baby, wouldn't you come today and receive the life and the salvation that Christ offers? Wouldn't you come and receive that now? Just in your heart, surrender to Christ. And then it's at this point that helps us all understand Christmas. This is why Jesus came. This is why came. We, we, we weren't seeking him. He came to seek and to save those who are lost. He came to give us his grace that we do not deserve. And so wherever you find your Christmas story, good times or bad, hard times, confusing times, complicated times, this is the message of Christmas. That Christ has come to seek and to save the lost, to give us his grace. And wouldn't even today we be encouraged in that grace and receive it from him like a little helpless child. Let me close in prayer. Lord Jesus, it's hard to fully understand our own helplessness. But God, thank you. The more we see, Lord, how utterly dependent we are on you and how lowly we are, the more Christ is glorified and brought higher. And so God, help us understand our helplessness. Help us see all that Christ has done for us and help us to receive all the grace, the salvation, and the life that he offers us. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen and amen. Uh, let me just say a word of thanks for you parents, aunts, uncles, family members who came for our children program. So grateful you are here. Uh, what we do at Harbor is we end every service with four words. And so I'll invite you to stand as we're going to send those four words, remind us that we have a mission. But before we do that, for the Christmas season, we've been singing a chorus just as a way to go out with worship and then those four words. And so Josh is going to lead us in that now.
And oh, come, let us adore Him. Oh, come, let us adore Him. Oh, come, let us adore Him. Christ the Lord. Harbor, we are sent.